Welcome to Short Story Discussions, the podcast by Short Story Book Club for people who love short stories. Get the best short stories delivered to your door each month when you subscribe at shortstorybookclub.com. And now, here's our show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Short Story Discussions. Today, we are joined by Ruth Franklin. Now, Ruth Franklin has um, an illustrious, I'm going to say illustrious, illustrious career uh, as a uh, nonfiction writer. She's written several books on uh, a myriad of uh, different topics, and one of those um, happens to be um, Shirley Jackson. So she she's written a biography about Shirley Jackson, who has, um, I guess, you know, through uh, the ages, has become most widely known for her writing of the short story, The Lottery. So whenever you go online and you look generally for short stories, like examples of, you know, really good short stories, The Lottery always comes up. Uh, and you know Shirley Jackson's name is is always there. Um, so Miss Franklin has written, the, the, literally written the book on Shirley Jackson, and it's uh, become a New York Times uh, notable book. And as you can see here on the cover, it's also the the winner of the NBCC Award for Biography. So it's some really good stuff. And I've had the pleasure of reading uh, portions of this book, and I can tell you it is a wonderful, um, a wonderful read. And today we're going to talk with Ruth about this book and her writing and um, all things short stories. So um, are you ready, Ruth? Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. So even though I gave... Uh, you know, a little um, brief introduction. I would like for you to also just introduce yourself, you know, um, to tell the audience uh, just a little bit more about um, who you are and and uh, and what you do. Sure. I'm a, I'm a book critic, uh, first and foremost. Um, for years, I was on the staff of the magazine, The New Republic. Um, and I've been a freelance book critic um, for about uh, seven or eight years now. I write mainly book reviews, um, authors, also some author profiles and other cultural criticism uh, for places like uh, the New York Times Book Review, New York Times Magazine, New Yorker, um, other publications that um, you run, you know, run, run serious commentary about uh, books and culture. Mm -hmm. And this is actually um, uh, an occupation that I I have never heard of before. I didn't know that someone could be um, a book critic. I mean, as a as a uh, <laughs> as, as a job, right? <laughs> because I mean, usually what you see is you know people going online and giving their reviews, or you know going on YouTube talking about how much they love a book or what have you. But um, and or there might be you know maybe you know um, uh, a random person who 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 maybe 
you know, publishes something in a magazine or a newspaper or about, or, or a journalist who publishes about uh, a new book that's coming out or something like that. But I mean, um, an actual book critic, how, how does this, how does this work? I mean, as a job. Well, you know, there there is a long tradition of book criticism in, in this country and in England of people who were, you know, who are full-time, uh, you know, either freelance or staff um, book reviewers. Um, less and less these days, um, as, you know, I'm sure, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, lots of newspapers are cutting down on their books coverage or, you know, changing it to be kind of more journalism focused and less about the criticism. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, it is still possible to uh, make a living as a book critic today. I mean, I do combine it with other things. Um, I teach, I've taught in journalism school and in writing programs. Um, and of course, I also write books. Um, but yeah, I started off as as a, a you know magazine editor and book reviewer. And that's, you know, kind of my first love. And so um, authors or pu- publishers, let's say pu- publishers, would send you books, you read them, and you and you provide um, a critique. Well, it's I mean it's a little bit more involved. I do get um, massive amounts of free books. That's a huge perk of, of right. this job. Um, mostly they're what's what are called advanced readers copies. So they're you know sort of um, quickly you know hastily done pre copies. That may have errors in them, or you know, other they're not full. You know, they don't have hard covers; they're always soft cover. Um, and a, you know, different, just a little bit different from the finished copies that the public will buy. So I get lots of those. They generally come out um, three, four, five months before a book is published, and then either I'll pitch the books that I want to write about to the different publications that I write for. Or editors will contact me, um, you know, knowing my interests, um, you know, my skills and say, hey, this came in um, and we thought you'd be a great reviewer for it. Will you do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's a question of balancing, you know, balancing the stuff that I really want to do with the stuff that other people want me to do. Mm-hmm. What are some of the trends that you're finding now in, in the works that you're reading? Um, I, it's you know I always have a hard time talking generally about trends. I guess because the, you know there's so much out there. You know at any given moment you've got you know historical fiction and you know contemporary you know novels of information and all kinds of other stuff. But I mean I guess the the trend that we're really seeing at the moment is sort of this trend towards um, metafiction or you know fiction that kind of incorporates techniques of nonfiction, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, it, people used to talk about um, creative nonfiction that incorporated techniques of fiction. Like, you know, you'd have really engaging, um, readable, beautifully structured um, nonfiction. Some people even call them nonfiction novels, right? I don't, I don't really love that term. But, you know, non, works of um, narrative nonfiction, you know, narrative journalism, 
that are fully reported and true, you know, factual, um, but are told in a style that's almost like a novel. And I think now what we're seeing more and more is novels that are kind of told in the style of nonfiction, you know, with a narrator who feels kind of indistinguishable from the writer, whether or not that's actually true, you know, that's the illusion that the book gives and you know novels that incorporate like little snippets of essays and stuff like that um so yeah i think that's that's actually a trend that really interests me a lot mm-hmm. and have have you tr- tried any of those so i mean in the in the course of your writing other books outside of uh outside of the the journalistic or the the literary criticism that you do Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, not for publication, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the books I've written are, you know, both fairly kind of traditional nonfiction. I've written a book of essays about Holocaust literature um, that's, you know, really kind of classic literary criticism. Um, and of course, a biography of Shirley Jackson that is, you know, in many, many ways, a conventionally told biography in that, you know, it starts more or less in the beginning and it ends more or less at the end and covers the full scope of her life in between there. Mm -hmm. Okay. And are these, I mean, um, does this feel like uh, an exciting time for uh, literature? I mean, so you were just talking about metafiction, for example, like these this new style that seems to be taking um, uh, a greater hold on, you know, the way writers are writing. Uh, does this does this seem like a like a, a renaissance to the way writers are approaching their craft, or is it just you know, or people are just this is something that's always been done and, and metafiction just happens to be one of the, one of the styles that, that happens to be coming forward at this time. Do you think, you know, I think, you know, to different degrees, um, the most interesting writers have always been those who are, um, you know, most able or most engaged with experiments with form, at least in, in my opinion, you know, like that's really what distinguishes all the great, modernists is you know what they're what they're willing to do with the novel which is such a you know such a flexible form that you can really you know twist into so many different shapes and achieve so many different possible effects with and i think you know i think part of what we're seeing now in this greater emphasis on on fact and on conveying you know the texture of of real life in a different way. Um, you know, I think maybe a lot of that has to do with just the way that our world has changed, you know, just the way that we experience reality differently than we did, you know, 15 or 20 years ago because of the, you know, the incredible changes that the internet has, has wrought on our lives. Right. That's, that's interesting. Um, you know, the, that line between the fact and fiction in real life is really blurring i mean like um and i don't i everyone who's listening already knows what i'm talking about but um we've got this um you know personalities and we've and we've got things that uh uh that that we would say that never that we would never imagine would actually ever happen and yet um it's almost so fantastic 
that it it plays out in real life as if it is fiction, but it's 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 all real right. and true. Yeah, I mean, I think about social media, for instance, and the way that it feels like we're all kind of constantly narrating our lives in different ways. Um, you know, we curating and choosing what we present and we may you know we may do it with text we may do it with photos or some combination but um it does strike me as just you know it's a new way that we're all kind of constantly engaged in telling our stories hmm. it's very that's very interesting okay so um you do the criticism, the literary criticism of the the different um, manuscripts that that you re- well, the advanced reader copies that you see that you receive, um, and in some cases you mention that you will also uh, write about uh, some authors. Can you tell us mm-hmm. a, a little bit about how that works? So is it um, is it sort of something like we're doing here where you have an author who has a book and you're writing about um, that author and therefore the book that, that's coming out or is it more like a profile type thing? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, normally, even when I do a profile, it's normally pegged to a book that's coming out soon because, you know, that's just the way, that's the way the publicity machine works. And that's, you know, that's why um, magazine and newspaper editors are interested in talking about anybody, you know, at a certain given moment. So, for instance, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I profiled the writer Claire Massoud uh, for the Times Magazine, and she w- was about to publish um, her latest novel, which was called The Burning Girl. Um, and I've always just been really, really interested in the creative process. And that's part of why um, I was excited to write a biography of Shirley Jackson was just the opportunity it gave me to kind of, you know, delve into her her manuscripts and her notes and, you know, her journals and interview people and try to figure out, um, you know, what makes this particular person create this particular work of art, you know, at this moment of their lives, right? I mean, it's such a, a, you know, in many ways, it's an impossible question to answer, right? We can never, we never exactly know like what, you know, what sparked um, the Haunting of Hill House, for instance, and Shirley Jackson's imagination, or you know, or the lottery. Um, although certainly there are um, lots of possible theories about it. Um, but I mean, and that's really what I do when I write an author profile too. Is I'm just I'm most interested in you know well, how did this person come to create this work? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know I think that's what I mean. Certainly as a reader, that's what I'm very interested in. You know. It's just the the mysteries of how people how people make art. I feel like are just endlessly fascinating. So when you came upon Shirley Jackson, uh, what was it specifically about? Uh, I'll just call her Shirley. What was it specifically about <laughs> Shirley uh, that that led you to say that that she was a person not only worth writing about, you know, like let's say you know, a couple thousand words in a in a magazine, but something who was someone who was really worth writing an entire book about. Right. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely it is a big commitment to write a biography of somebody. I spent you know from beginning to end. I I spent about six years on the book. 
Um, you know, not always. I was writing criticism and other stuff at the same time, but you know, still, it's a lot of time to spend engaged in one particular person's life, basically. Um, and for Jackson, um, I felt like she—I mean, she was always one of those writers who had kind of been a touchstone for me, um, who I had in the back of my head. Uh, the Haunting of Hill House, which I mentioned already, is one of my favorite novels ever. Um, it's just—it's a really beautifully, beautifully written ghost story that, um, like all the best ghost stories, I think, um, is about so much more than just the supernatural. Um, she really uses it as a way to get into the question of what we as human beings fear and what that says about us and, you know, about our minds. Um, so that was a book that, you know, that I'd read, I think, as a teenager and really always stayed with me. And of course, I read the lottery like so many of us do in high school and, you know, really was was um, struck by it in a, in a, in a deep way. Um, but it actually wasn't until um, uh, the Library of America brought out a much larger edition of Jackson's work that included a lot of her nonfiction, which I hadn't read before. Um, that I really started thinking about her as a person and about what her life had been like, um, especially um, stuff she had written about her life as a mother, um, uh, you know, as a mother who was really expected to be kind of a typical 1950s housewife, um, but who obviously at the same time was driven to, you know, to be a great writer, to create the, the novels and stories that she created, um, sometimes under immense personal pressure um, and with very little support from those around her. Um, so once I, when I learned about that aspect of her life, that was what really drew me in and made me feel like I, I needed to find out more and to write her life story. And what sort of uh, surprises did you find? Um, I mean... You know, surprises. It's hard to say. In some ways, in a lot of ways, my conception of, of Jackson didn't really change from the beginning of the project to the end. Um, but there were, you know, there were lots of little surprises along the way. I guess one would have been that um, her process was so different for writing stories and writing novels. Um, like she, she always said that she basically sat down and wrote the lottery in a single morning and sent it out to the New Yorker and it was published with virtually no changes. And, you know, it turned out there were maybe a few more changes than she usually, that she tended to let on. But by and large, that story was true. And it was, believe it or not, her general method when she wrote stories. Um, she would, you know, sit down at the typewriter and they would come out and that would be it for her. And, but with her novels, the process was totally different and full of false starts and lots of drafts that didn't go anywhere um, and just a lot more creative anguish. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really interesting for me to see. And I guess, you know, I guess another surprise actually is um, how hard she had to work at submitting her stories before um, they would be published. Um, you know, in the 1940s, early 1940s, when she first started, writing, the market for short fiction was a lot bigger than it is today. And there were a lot of, you know, potential magazines, um, women's magazines and, you know, general interest magazines that published fiction, many more than there are today. Um, and she would send stories out to, you know, 
two dozen magazines or more sometimes um, and, you know, rack up so many rejections. And I, I found that really inspiring, actually, that mm-hmm. um, she was able to keep going even in the face of so much rejection. Mm-hmm. And did that change after she became famous for the lottery? I mean, was I, how- I mean yes and no. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Uh, you know, the fact that she published the lottery in The New Yorker um, didn't mean that they were automatically going to take the rest of her fiction from then on. In fact... She never published another work of fiction in that magazine. Um, she did. She published a little uh, kind of memoiristic piece of nonfiction, but they never accepted another one of her short stories. Mm. Now, even though that, even though that had been, you know, one of the, you know, the most sensational pieces of writing they ever published. And I would imagine, um, perhaps it could be because. There were so many people who had, um, uh, what's the right word? I don't know. Um, but they, they had threatened to uh, cancel their subscription. That's right. There were people who threatened to cancel their uh, subscriptions. The story generated a lot of mail. Um, but, you know, most of it wasn't hostile um, the way that it's generally thought of as being. Most of it was people who were just kind of puzzled by the story and really wanted an explanation for what it was about. Mm-hmm. And do you suppose, I mean, I don't know if I remember this correctly. So her husband, wasn't he also at The New Yorker? Or yeah, not? her husband for a while was a staff writer at The New Yorker. Um, and he also was a literary critic um, who later became uh, a professor at Bennington College. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the fact that her husband was a staffer at The New Yorker did not necessarily make it any easier for her to publish her, her writing there. Mm-hmm. All right. Hmm. That's uh, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, on the one hand, like I said, there were there were all these people threatening to unsubscribe, but in today's world, a little controversy is what um, gets more people to buy, right? Yeah. So they, interesting. Yeah. This was this would be the exact opposite, I think, that, that what most people would do. Um, uh, most publishers and magazines would do. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think of the lottery really as kind of the, the first story that went viral, um, you know, in, in the way that things could go viral back in 1948 when it was published. I mean, people were, you know, talking about it on the bus and writing letters to each other about it. And everybody in the office at The New Yorker had a different theory about it. And it really, you know, it made a huge impact on the culture. Mm-hmm. And do you have a theory about what the story might mean? <laughs> well, you know, I, Jackson was really always kind of reluctant to kind of put her finger on a specific interpretation. And I guess, you know, I kind of go with her. Um, I think, you know, the beauty of the story is that it, it can be read in so many different ways that, you know, that it is so open-ended. But, you know, when it comes down to it, I think it's about, you know, the way people are, you know, irrationally, you know, in, inhumane to each other. The kind of, you know, the innate barbarism that is, you know, whether we admit it or not, that is kind of inherent, I guess, in some in some way in the social contract. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Um, I will say, you know, when I when I reflected um, a little bit more about uh, about the lottery, um, you know, and also thinking about you know some of the things that I learned about Shirley Jackson uh, in reading your biography, I felt a little bit like she she reminded me a little bit of of Jordan Peele actually. Um, mm. This modern uh, there's like a modern comparison um, just in terms of um, I mean obviously you know Jordan Peele he works in film and, and all that's that's his medium but when you have this story that you that you're trying to tell but there's like all of these other layers beneath it and then like you had said earlier about horror sort of right. being this um, I guess a mask. This horror is sort of like this mask for these these underlying feelings, these underlying fears that people have um, uh, for other things. And so, like, you know, maybe in the same way that a comedian um, uses humor to pull back the mask, you know, maybe the, the horror film or you know the horror genre uh, allows allows readers to, uh, to to look at some of their deeper fears um, and and to to understand that they that they are indeed frightening uh, and maybe to look at that frightening side in a way that uh, that is less um, less offensive than if they were just sort of like hit in the forehead. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting comparison. Um, Yeah, I mean, what I find especially compelling about Jackson's works is that, um, you know, she works in this genre that could be called domestic horror. In that, you know, for the most part, it's not supernatural. Um, It's not otherworldly. It's about the stuff that takes place on a day-to-day basis in women's lives, especially. Um, and that's my, my main belief about why she wasn't taken as seriously as she ought to have been um, by critics who were her contemporaries is because of her virtually single-minded focus on women and on women's experience. Um, and, you know, on the horror that is that she sees to be at the basis of women's lives, uh, which, you know, basically is a manifestation of patriarchy as we can see it. Um, and yeah, I think you could say that he's doing something very, very similar um, with the African-American experience in contemporary life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, he's really, he's kind of showing us, as you said, peeling back the layer and showing us the kind of the root of horror at the basis of it all. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I was thinking about the, the new, the latest film, Us. Mm. Um, we're, we're, and that sort of reminded me, some of the themes that are in Us are also in the lottery, um, but I, I I won't go in go into that. But um, there was a there was a lot of things about uh, um, well you know obviously fear, but my interpretation of the lottery has to do with um, people accepting uh, uh, accepting other people's fears as uh, as fact. So uh, let's say, for example, 
um, so so the book club has a has another component. So there's this author chat, and there's also this component where where I sit down um, with book club members, and we just dis- discuss the. Um, the story live in person, and sometimes members will come on uh, online and talk um, with the author. Um, but most of the time, they're they're pretty shy. So I, I apologize for that. But, um, in in one of the um, the, the live discussions, um, you know, we I was my opinion was that um, it sort of seemed. Uh, akin to, you know, like maybe someone a very long time ago being afraid of something different, right? So you you pick your own modern-ism. And many years ago, someone was afraid because it was different. And therefore, they formed all of these rules and laws and this and that around how this particular... Um, thought or belief or whatever should should be ostracized or whatever and and uh, it just stuck. I mean, there were like themes in there in the lottery where um, uh, there were certain younger people who were saying, "Hey, you know, like maybe we sh- we should just you know give up this idea. Maybe we should like move on to something else." And and um, but it was the the older people, the older generation who kept saying, oh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And um, to a certain degree, that sort of reminded me like of the LGBT movement, Um, like um, people saying things like, uh, well, you know, uh, many years ago, it was very difficult for people to talk about it. And now um, there's a um, less of a resistance. uh, at least less fear around. Right, there's much greater acceptance. Right. Boy, I sure am talking talking about a lot of contro- controversial things today. <laughs> I have not um, planned well, let's to. let's not hold back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that's... But yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And yeah, yeah one, of, uh, one of the most chilling lines in the lottery for me is when... Um, old man Warner, who's, you know, sort of like the, the old, the, the mouthpiece for like the town's, um, traditional values such that they are, right? Um, and yeah, he's talking about these young uns who want to do away with lotteries altogether. And he says, there's always been a lottery. And I just, I just find that so chilling. Um, you know, the kind of blind appeal to a tradition, even if, we don't understand what it's for, or, you know, or what it means, what it's still doing, even if it's demonstrably doing something bad. The idea that, oh, because there's always been a lottery, we can't risk getting rid of it. Right, right. And that and that could be any idea. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. I sure wish uh, Ms. Jackson were here. Uh, <laughs> well, I do, too. <laughs> uh, but um, so so actually, let's let's talk about that though. So um, uh, the legacy that she leaves. Um, so uh, a lot of people who will be listening to this interview, um, first of all, will not have an idea of the the um, social climate um, that the lottery was was written in, and I think that also adds a lot of. Um, 
context to why um, Ms. Jackson's work is, is so important to today. So could you maybe just sort of describe um, sort of the social aspects of the 1940s, um, you know, around the time when, when the lottery was, uh, was first published? Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, yeah, 1948, so we're, you know, just a few years away from the end of World War II, which obviously was a traumatic experience for many Americans, um, you know, who were fighting in the war, their brothers or their sons were, you know, maybe they didn't come back. Um, and then the country going through this massive shift um, after in that post-war period where women who had been working to fill the jobs, um, you know, that were left empty by men who went to war were suddenly told that they now it was time for them to go home. And that was their role. Their role was to be in the home um, and leave the jobs for the men. And at the same time, we've got, you know, the rise of communism and with it, McCarthyism. Uh, and so the, the, there's a real climate of, of suspicion, you know, of suspicion literally of one's neighbors. Um, and, you know, we talked about surprises. Um, one real surprise for me working on the book was to discover um, from Shirley's husband, Stanley's FBI file, um, that um, they were they were indeed the subjects of an FBI investigation, um, especially him, uh, that their, their neighbors were spying on them to the FBI who suspected them of being Communist Party members. Um, and to me, the irony of that is just so rich that, you know, the, this woman who wrote this, you know, story that could be read as, you know, a, a story in some ways about paranoia, about, um, about you know, somebody who fears their, their neighbors, somebody whose neighbors are going to turn on them um, because that's, you know, that's precisely what, what the lottery is about. Um, in real life, in fact, her neighbors were spying on her. Um, I, I just feel like you, you can't you can't get a better encapsulation of you know the the suspicion and the the paranoia the mistrust of of those years. And so when when Miss Jackson wrote uh, uh, the lottery, it, it was it was published, but but I but I believe um, if I remember correctly. Uh, there had been, you know, some of um, some of her husband's peers had said things like, "Oh, you know, uh, Mr. Jackson, you know, he has a serious career, and Mrs. Jackson, you know, sort of dabbles at this for fun." So, I mean, she she really also for a very long time was not even considered a serious writer. That's right. Um, yeah. So her husband was Stanley Edgar Hyman. He was a literary critic um, and also, you know, in this circle of New Yorker writers. Um, and she was always kind of on the outside of that circle. Um, she was friendly with many of the same writers that he was, you know, like Joseph Mitchell, um, James Thurber, you know, many of the others who's, names you'd recognize from those kind of classic New Yorker days. Um, but, you know, I, I have the impression that it was very much a boys club um, and she didn't, she didn't have a circle of writers around her who were, you know, giving her feedback and supporting her the way uh, Stanley did with, uh, with his colleagues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she had a number of 
social challenges um, that she was up against, um, as well as, you know, I, I, I mean, social challenges in the professional uh, sense, just in terms of, mm-hmm. um, you know, being a woman, like we've discussed, and um, that peer-to-peer network, um, which uh, that you brought up, but then also, um, you know, not being recognized as having a real occupation um, outside of, uh, you know, being a parent or the wife of mm-hmm. someone else. So right. she sort of had this uh, dual identity. Um, is there... Was there any, um, I mean, you did, there was some discussion of that um, in the biography, but maybe could you talk a little bit about how, um, how this, this, this dual duality of her life um, affected her? Sure, I mean, there's this wonderful story, uh, wonderful slash awful story that she um, would tell about how, um, uh, about checking into the hospital to give birth to her third child. Um, and the clerk supposedly asked her for her profession, and she said, writer. And the clerk said to her, I'll just put down housewife. And, you know, to me, reading this, um, which, you know, by the way, it's, is embedded in uh, just absolutely hilarious account of labor and delivery, which is very hard to pull off. Um, when I read this, um, you know, my heart just broke for her. And all the other, you know, 50s housewives of her cohort um, who, you know, wanted so desperately to be accepted to be recognized as something other than a man's helpmeet, you know, a man's appendage. And over and over again, they were simply denied that aspect of their identity. Um, One thing I found, again, something just heartbreaking in Jackson's files was she used to get letters from um, women who would read her stories in in the popular women's magazines at the time. Um, She would publish these you know, humorous essays about her children, you know, humorous, mostly, you know, mostly non-fictional, maybe, you know, some of the details fudged a little bit, kind of like, you know, like David Sedaris or any other humorist. Um, And in response, she would get just a flood of letters from other women who would say, you know, I want to be a writer too. My children are just as funny as yours, but, you know, I just, I can't find the time with, you know, the, meals and the cleaning up and my husband doesn't do anything to help me and I have all these responsibilities. Tell me, how do you do it? Um, and, you know, you might remember the novel um, from 15 or so years ago, I don't know how she does it, about the working mother. And I just, I just came to think of these uh, in my head as the, as the, I don't know how she does it letters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just flipping through these files, seeing all these women's handwriting on their nice stationery, you know, which usually bore their married name, you know, on your stationery back in those days, you were Mrs. John Smith or whatever, you know, you didn't even, you didn't even have your own name on your, on your writing paper. Um, and it just, you know, felt like a, a file of, of thwarted dreams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And finally, when I mean, I don't even know if, 
if it's right to call it recognition because when people finally started uh, looking at Ms. Jackson's work, um, most of the attention focused on this one story, the lottery. That's right, yeah. Um, and, I mean, she's, you know, she's had a, a very, like, broad uh, career. And as you mentioned, she's written both fiction and nonfiction um, but this, it seems to me, and this is me interpreting, um, interpreting the, the biography, um, you know, it, it eventually took, um, a toll on her and it, and I, and she developed, um, agoraphobia, uh, mm-hmm. in the end. Can you tell us a little bit about how this progressed so she had all of this this wonderful fame everything or many things um to be um proud and excited about um but but in the end she developed this uh this um this psychological block yeah i mean it's it's complicated there are a lot of factors i mean as you say um, she was a very diverse writer. She wrote half a dozen finished novels, a couple that she didn't finish, and you know dozens of short stories, um, as well as her memoirs about her family life. And you know, in in some ways, of course, the lottery remains the best known of her works. But she was, you know, both of her household memoirs were bestsellers at the time. Um, the Haunting of Hill House was very well known. Um, her last completed novel. We have always lived in the castle. Um, also, was um, got was got the most critical acclaim of any work she published during her lifetime. So, you know, she really um, she had a lot to celebrate in her career and to be proud of. Um, and it was um, personal pressures, also combined with some health problems. I think that kind of conspired to keep her in the house, you know, almost a prisoner in her house for some of the last years of her life. Um, And part of it was just, you know, that she always was a little bit psychologically unstable. She had issues with depression, even as a teenager. Um, And then some of her insecurities were exacerbated by her husband's behavior. Um, He was kind of um, consistently unfaithful to her. Um, that, that which you know she, which caused her a lot of agony, um, and she also had a really difficult relationship with her mother, who was very critical of her, um, very critical of her body, even at a young age. Um, she always struggled with her weight, sometimes more than other times, and that, you know, also is something that kind of put a lot of pressure on her, a lot of stress, um, and so yeah, all these things combined and kind of flared up at a couple of different points in her life. Um, One of those being towards the end, shortly after We Have Always Lived in the Castle was published. Um, She had about, I think, a year and a half, maybe two years, where she really struggled with leaving the house. And, And unfortunately, that's, you know, the image that I think a lot of people have of her is this, you know, kind of, shut-in, recluse, kind of eccentric person. 
Um, and part of the tragedy of her life, um, she died, you know, rather young at age 48. Um, part of the tragedy of that is that she actually was uh, well on the way to recovery when she died. Um, in the last six months of her life, she did actually did a lecture tour um, of a whole bunch of different colleges up and down the East Coast, I think elsewhere in the country too. Um, so yeah, she was really overcoming these problems. She had started two new novels that she left unfinished when she died. Um, so, you know, her career was, and her, her personal life was kind of on the rebound when she died. So, which I find, you know, kind of a, a painful irony. Mm-hmm. So if there is, you know, maybe one or two things that you think that, that someone should should remember or know or you know pass on about Ms. Jackson what would you say that is I mean thinking in terms of her legacy Hmm. I mean I think you know her legacy is really of a writer who was you know who didn't identify as a feminist per se there wasn't a feminist movement in the way we think of it now during her lifetime, but who nonetheless was absolutely committed to telling the stories of women um, in many, many different ways, you know, in fiction, in nonfiction, um, in realistic stories, in, you know, supernatural stories. Um, But that was the great interest of her life. The great fascination was with, um, with the interior lives of women. And it's a subject that has traditionally not been taken seriously as a subject uh, for fiction, primarily because, you know, at Jackson's, during Jackson's time and nearly to our present moment, um, most literary critics and canon makers have been men. And, you know, they simply fail to recognize, uh, you know, either, either what she was doing or why it was important. Um, but, you know, for me... That's the real legacy she leaves is of of a a writer who is just deeply, deeply interested in portraying what it was like to be a woman in, you know, mid-century America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of uh, a lot of things that uh, that are of interest to women are often seen as frivolous that uh that continues right despite the fact that you know we're we're more than a majority of the population but you know it's all about it's all about the tastemakers and the cannon builders and you know tragically i think that that's why her her legacy was was somewhat shut out for decades and you know i'm really really gratified to see that she's having a resurgence because i think you know the time has finally come that we're we're ready to accept that um the great American novel may come in in many more forms than we, uh, you know, initially may have thought it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I say we, I'm not actually including you or me. <laughs> oh well, I'm not including you in that. <laughs> no, I mean as uh, as those who would you know underestimate oh underestimate women's fiction because um, you know because it doesn't correspond with the stereotypical conception of you know what's always been considered important or you know or great Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yes, and and, and that that debate uh, continues. Um, I have heard, you know, uh, from some, you know, women writers that, uh, you know, that that it's that it's still rather difficult. Um, and you would think that, you know, a good story is a good story, no matter who tells it. But at the end of the day, there 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 does still tend to be uh, some level of bias. Um, like you're saying, like the tastemakers, it all depends on who selects the books and who owns the media and all this, that. Um, I think maybe the, the, the revenge will be um, the time when, uh, when women are able to own the media and to make more of the decisions about, um, about what they what they consider to be um, good stories to tell um, and, and things that are of value. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in so many different ways, you know, implicit and explicit, people's attention is directed towards, you know, what our culture deems important or, or worthy of consideration. I think some really important work has been done already and is, still being done and needs to be done in exposing you know, what's going on structurally beneath the surface when when people make those choices. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> totally go go on. Um, wow. There's there's just so much here. And I know that I only scratched the surface because we spent a lot of time talking about the lottery because that that is the the most uh famous um work that that uh, miss jackson has written i mean she's you know written a lot of other things but really uh the lottery is is what uh she's best known for mm-hmm. um but there is but there is just so much uh so much more that can be um uh, said for the for her life, things that that she has uh, experienced and how those experiences have shaped her into um, the type of writer that she is, and I think that's and it also echoes her stories themselves, right? So there's all there's also this um, there's all there's always more uh, than what's just on the surface, right? Of course. So, um, I didn't get a chance to ask you any, uh, you know, really writerly questions about the, the nonfiction, uh, writing process, um, or anything like that, but I, you said it took you six years, so it's not something that, that you did in a, (laughs) that you, that you wrote overnight. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I write it in a single morning, like the lottery. Right. Um, so maybe for anyone, let's say, you know, there's some uh, budding authors out there who are also interested in maybe, um, the, the kind of, um, nonfiction, um, writing that you do, maybe if you can sort of leave them with, um, a few words or or tips about like, uh, if, if, if there's someone important, uh, that they also think 
um, is worthy of a biography, their story needs to be told? Maybe like what are what are some things that they should be uh, looking out for? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, what you kind of need to do a biography, I would say, you know, in, in terms of choosing a subject, you would want somebody, you know, first and foremost, the most important thing is that it's somebody who you're really, really interested in. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say you necessarily have to love everything about them or everything they've done, but they have to be somebody who's going to hold your interest for a sustained period of time. Otherwise, I think it would just be a miserable experience to be stuck working on a book about somebody you didn't really care about. Um, but so, you know, once you've got somebody who who really fascinates you, um, you want to be looking for, you know, documentary material. Did they leave some kind of archive um, you know, or in, in the case of a lesser known figure or, you know, a figure from a group that's, you know, where documentation wasn't as likely to be preserved and all that, you know, many women writers fall into that category, for instance. Um, you know, are there other places where they kind of show up in other people's documentation? Um, because you need to, um, you do need to be able to build kind of a paper trail around them. Um, you know, in, in the absence of that, you would want to have a lot of people who knew them who are still alive to interview, hopefully. Um, so I feel like, you know, an ideal subject sort of has a magical combination of all of these. Hopefully, you know, hopefully they'll all be present, hopefully in different degrees, um, but for each subject, the balance between, you know, documentary stuff and live um, live witnesses, live sources to interview is going to be a little bit different. Um, but mostly I would just say, you know, you have to be, you have to be really flexible um, and prepared for any surprises that come up, you know, not kind of not get, not get thrown off your game if things, um, you know, if not everything goes quite the way you expect it, because certainly there are a lot of kind of bumps in the road as I was writing this book and you know you just kind of have to ride them out and <laughs> trust that everything will work out in the end mm -hmm. um, but yeah for listeners who are interested in more about kind of the nitty-gritty of writing a biography I did an interview on the hashtag am writing podcast a couple of months ago that um, that goes pretty deep into questions of research you know conducting research and organizing research and, you know, structuring, structuring the research into a book and all that kinds of stuff. So, uh, yeah, so I would point you to that. Again, it's, it's uh, the podcast called Hashtag M Writing. Mm -hmm. And what's the name of the podcast we're listening to now? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so, um, and let's say, uh, people want to learn more about you. Where should we be going to find um, more writing from Ruth Franklin or a website or what have you? Um, yeah, well, I'm all over social media. I've got a website at ruthfranklin.net. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Instagram. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out there and pretty easy to find. Okay. And do you have any other books or anything that we should be on the lookout for right now? Well, I've got something that's in very early stages now. So uh, it's, it's a little too soon to say, but hopefully there will be news from me about that 
um, before too long. Okay, good, good. Um, all right, then. Um, it has really been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining thank us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that's it for another great episode of Short Story Discussions, brought to you by Short Story Book Club. Would you like to become a member of the club? Visit us online at shortstorybookclub.com to subscribe. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. Your story matters, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for being part of today's episode. See you next time.